Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, Stephen Hayes, and David French. Today, coronavirus, the overreactions, the underreactions, the trusted media, and what Congress is looking to do. And maybe we'll end with just a little bit of the primaries last night and where the Bernie Sanders movement goes from here. And on a lighter note, how are the guys talking to their kids about what's going on in the country right now? Is this the next generation 9-11? Let's get right to it. Obviously, things have changed a lot since last week for us and for a lot of people around the country. So just want to acknowledge that we are in a little bit of a different pod setup this week. Steve, where are you right now? Um, I am on the, uh, sort of in a, our, our uh, attic, basically, that's been remade <laughs> as a podcast studio, sitting here surrounded by pillows. And if we can expect fun interruptions, where would those interruptions come from? Um, I, I made everybody who's staying with us right now, we've got my own family and another family whose house was just gutted last week, stay with us. So I made everybody take a walk. So they're off with the walk, <laughs> all 10 of them and the dog. So I, wow. I hope we won't have any interruptions, but my, um, getting up to speed technically on this took us so long that they may be back soon. <laughs> uh, David? You're actually in your most usual pod situation. You're in your closet. You're not wearing your Rockets hoodie, I notice, um, which maybe no. is just a signal of the weather changing in Tennessee. No, I'm in my do-it-yourself podcast studio uh, that we constructed. And no, today I'm wearing a t-shirt that I got at the Demilitarized Zone in Korea when I was serving in Korea during Operation Key Resolve 2010. So nice humble brag noted vintage vintage. <laughs> uh, and Jonah, <laughs> I think listeners will be the most disappointed. I am to hear where you are. For um, those who follow the, the trials and travails of Zoe and Gracie and Ralph and Pippa. I'm in that old abandoned mental institution off route seven. It's not creepy <laughs> at all. Uh, no, I am. I actually went into the dispatch offices Knowing because that none of us would be there. Knowing that since no one's here and the Wi-Fi is great and the Wi-Fi has been glitchy at my house and the dogs have become so unbelievably loud and needy during this, this trying time that I just thought this was – and my daughter is who's back and has uh, a penchant for streaming video constantly. I just thought this was the best, best course of action. All right. And, appreciate um, it. Uh, I got to say, looking at all of us – Steve kind of looks like he's calling from a rehab center. Uh, <laughs> David looks like he's calling from the space station. And you look like there are sounds coming from inside your house and a clawed hand is going to come out from behind the door, Sarah, and whisk you away. You're very horror movie looking. So I am in the closet underneath our staircase uh, with the board games to prop up the microphone. And then I built a pillow fort around the microphone on top of the board games. Um, I have to leave the door cracked so that they can see me at all. And the result is that um, 
I have two cats, but my cat, Zooey, has already opened the door, meowed at me loudly, then stepped right outside the door and thrown up. So that's the potential interruptions from my head, although he seems to have given up now. Uh, let's, let's dive right in, given our explanations uh, for, for why things are funny today. Um, David, I'm going to start with you on this one, I think. Okay. In part because you wrote this great piece about some of the legal issues surrounding why you can close churches, why governors are the ones making these decisions and not the president. Uh, and and I think that legal explanation is great, but there's also kind of a realism explanation that that's not 1918 anymore. Uh, I've really enjoyed, I've done tons of reading on 1918. I'm, I'm loving this like 100 years ago thing that I'm living in. But in the modern media era and where we are, having people follow 50 different guidelines of what's closed, what's open, uh, right. some people are heralding this as a victory for federalism. But I think there's just a reality that uh, it's pretty confusing to have federalism all of a sudden for a lot of people. I think federalism is more confusing on Twitter than it is in the lives that people <laughs> normally lead. Because if you're on Twitter, you're seeing all of the different standards in all of the different localities and municipalities and states coming in all at once. The Oklahoma governor is seems to be chill about this, that, uh, you know, out in California, Governor Newsom is, you know, leading is endorsing some of the more draconian measures that the cities are doing in California. And you just get this whirlwind of information coming in if you're living on social media, if you're, and especially if you're living on Twitter. By contrast, if you're looking at other forms of media, if you're getting most of your news from local news, if you're getting some of your sort of the, the, your rumor news from your friends on Facebook, a lot of that's bearing down on the local situation. And so I think that this is one of those instances where we find out that Americans live really different lives, not just in different places, but they live different li- you know, it's not just that people in Alabama live a different life from New York. It's a depending on how you get your information, your perception of what is going on is wildly different. Um, it's already quite clear to me that amongst my extended uh, group of friends here in Tennessee, that there's a cohort that it's as if the coronavirus is just sort of this faint buzzing in the back of their mind. This is not something that is truly impacting their lives. And there's another cohort that this is absolutely front and center. And it and it really seems to be determined based on who is spending more time vacuuming up information online. But I, And I do think that that's that the triumph of federalism in the sense of state and local officials taking control of the precise guidelines in their region is a way to cut through this in the sense that rather than having people receive a whole bunch of different levels of information and trying to uh, regulate their activity according to accordingly, there is one source of police power in their community, and that single source of police power is the one that establishes the guidelines. And it's up to us to determine and to, to, to know those guidelines and to follow them. So Steve, super interesting, just following up on what David just said here, on the the trust numbers of where people are um, trusting the information that they're getting about coronavirus. Not surprisingly, uh, President Trump, 2% of Democrats, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, six 
8% of Democrats have a good amount or a great deal of trust. Um, Republicans, it's a much, much, you know, well over half. Uh, but then when you go to the news media, that kind of flips. Democrats um, have a lot more trust in the news media. Republicans, not so much. This follows, actually, both his approval numbers for the most part and the media's approval numbers for the most part are trusted media numbers from Gallup and Pew. But when you get down to state and local governments, those partisan differences melt away quite a bit. There's a little bit, but not a ton. Um, and when you get to public health experts, the numbers get really, really large of trust in public health experts. Is that is that good? I mean, it's good that people trust public health experts, I think. The, the rest of it is, um, I think, sad and disappointing, but unsurprising, right? I mean, we're looking at this new problem uh, through the prism of polarization, just as, as so much of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis before this was seen through the prism of polarization. And I think the difference is this has real public health implications for the people who are listening. The media, I would say, are, are, you know, you have some in the media, I would say, that are, are as always, eager to kind of play gotcha with um, the administration, with the, the federal response, with politicians in generally. But as a broader proposition, I think the media are, are mostly amplifying the voices of the public health professionals and doing so with, with some urgency in their reporting. And the reporting is, is pretty uh, alarming, I would say, and has been really now for, for several weeks. Uh, on the other hand, you have the administration uh, that has pretty consistently until really just this week um, downplayed the potential um, significance of, of this pandemic. Um, and, of course, the, the president uh, has his own amplifiers throughout the conservative media. And you're seeing this difference reflected not only in the approval-disapproval numbers for the president and how he's handling this, but in the more substantive numbers of, of how people themselves are dealing with this or, or thinking about this. Um, and as David said, I mean, you have people, this wide disparity between the kind of people who are, are bunkered down, have created this bubble around themselves or, or their family, and are not allowing that bubble to be penetrated for any reason. Um, taking sort of social distancing very seriously. And then you have others who, you know, as, as we've seen in, in pictures uh, on social media and, and no doubt in our conversations with friends who are not taking this seriously at all. You know, you'll get a, a, a text message from somebody who talks about how they were out all, all day yesterday, um, out and about. And I think that's coming to an end, both because of the change in tone from the president and uh, the administration, but also because there are just fewer things for people to do. If you want to be social, you can't really be social. There, there are a limited number of places to go. The final point I'll make is if you look at that, that number of public health professionals and how they're seen, I think it was 84%. Uh, people have faith in, in public health officials. 84% of people have faith that they're getting the truth from public health professionals. That is among many reasons that I think the administration would be wise to even step up the extent to which uh, it is putting the communications of 
uh, of the day-to-day -day here in the hands of people like Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Burks and others. Uh, they, they provide good information. They usually do it uh, pretty quickly after it's verified, and people trust them. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's advice the president would never take, um, even if you were listening here. But the best thing the president can do right now is to step back and let those people do the, the talking. So, Jonah, speaking of that, there was uh, some interesting reporting that said that actually in uh, one of the most recent press conferences, the president wasn't supposed to be there. It was going to be Pence and Fauci and Burks. And then he saw that they were all going out and was like, oh, I'll just go sit in the front row, which would be a little odd in the White House press room. And then he walked <laughs> out and went to the podium um, <laughs> to Steve's point at the same time. Are we willing to say that because of an era of polarization, we don't want to hear from the president anymore on an issue of such national concern? Where do you fall down? And and for that matter, not use the news media as a filter to get information out there because some people don't trust various parts of the news media. Yeah. So I have a slightly more rosy take on all of this than Steve does. Um, first of all, I think that some of the... Uh, that if you look at things through a purely partisan prism, prism and the, the narrative of polarization that we've all been reading about and talking about for the last three or 30 years, um, it looks kind of depressing. But there, I think there are other skews here. Young people tend to just not listen to authority. You could look it up. Um, and, or any rock um, song. <laughs> and... Um, uh, there's also, you know, the big sort isn't just a political thing. It also has to do with the fact that, like, um, people who live in red states, a lot of them, you know, including, like, the hardcore Fox viewers tend to live in places that are much less densely populated. And yeah, it just seems like less of an issue. Um, there's also a great tradition in this country of people who get away from the coasts of just thinking that the, the coastal people are kind of losing their minds. And I'm not I'm not defending, you know, dismissing this stuff. But the fact that these people are telling pollsters they actually believe the public health officials to high numbers tells you that that they're just that there are other filters and other screens going on and how they look at this stuff. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, look, I mean, I, I agree with Steve that it would definitely be I think it would be in Trump's best interest if he could find if he could calibrate his presence um, a little lower and a little um, less, you know, front and center. That said, look, I, I'm I'm on record. I thought that that address to the country on Wednesday night last week was indisputably the worst televised national address in American history by a U.S. president. In its development, its delivery, its content, its effect, um, every single way, I thought it was a complete disaster. And I'm I'm perfectly happy to say that. Since then, he's gotten a lot better. And we can argue about whether people are grading Trump on a on a curve that's sort of unfair, is saying that this has been Trump's most presidential performance, sort of like saying the best gas station sushi in Alabama. You know, it's <laughs> saying something, but it's just not saying a lot. Uh, those are all legitimate arguments to have. Um, but it shouldn't shock us that there is a discrepancy in the way people are taking this stuff in, particularly since – some of our colleagues at Fox News only a week ago were still downplaying this and saying this was just another impeachment effort. It takes a little time for that stuff 
to sort of saturate in and get out there. Um, and on the federalism stuff, I think it's great. I think it's just, the fact that people are believing their local officials is more than they're believing national officials is as it should be. And um, it is a sign that that people actually trust the people who know who they know better, who know how they live, who know what is what the problems are closer to the ground. That's better. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. I want to denationalize our politics as much as possible, even if that's a problem. It creates a challenge for public health issues. As a general thing, I think it is a better and more fulfilling way to organize a society. And so I'm hoping that we can get some benefit out of this in the long run. So some fun numbers, just because that's, uh, you know, my main job here, I think. Uh, (laughs) You know, we look at trust in news media. And I think when pollsters call someone and give such a broad-based question, they go to whatever they're sort of thinking of in in an outrage bubble probably the most quickly. But you look at local journalists, uh, Jonah, to your point on sort of, let's call it media federalism. Uh, local journalists are seen as more caring, 36%, more trustworthy, 29%, neutral and unbiased, 23%. Uh, it is by far the most trusted part of news is the nightly local news program when you ask people what they believe. Now, it doesn't mean they're not watching cable news or network news or even looking at Twitter. But as far as what they believe, it's, uh, you know, in Houston, at least, it's the the five o'clock news. Um, and I also think... a big problem that's looming right now. Uh, There's going to be a lot of cultural things that are going to unexpected cultural things to come out of all of us being at home more and with our loved ones more, hopefully some good things, probably some bad things. I'm concerned that one of the main things will be people spending more time on Twitter, which I already think was undermining uh, a lot of reporting. There's great studies out there about how skewed reporters' mindsets get being on Twitter too much in terms of determining what's newsworthy, what stories to chase. Uh, And this is just the number I like telling my students all the time. Um, So 50 million U.S. adults are on Twitter. Of those, 6% account for 73% of the tweets on national politics. So that means fewer than 1% of Americans are frequently weighing in about politics on Twitter. And, of course, they're not representative. Um, Three out of the four tweets in 2019 about national politics were written by someone over the age of 50. Uh, Three of those four tweets about national politics were written by people who strongly disapprove of Trump. They're more likely to be college-educated, liberal, wealthier, to live on the coast, obviously, um, and a little bit more likely to be Democratic, weirdly, than Republican, but that's actually the least skewed part of all of the skews on Twitter. And so as reporters in particular to me have this sort of free time at home, I think it could be really bad as they get even more addicted to Twitter. Yeah. Well, you know, Sarah, I was, I think that's an excellent point. And it's also what we're seeing is that a lot of this stuff is still being filtered through the imperative of the fight that there always has to be a fight. And it's not super satisfying to fight a virus because the, vi- <laughs> the virus doesn't tweet back at you. So we're, we're on, how many days have we been fighting about this? Is it the Wuhan virus or is it the Chinese virus or is it not? Which is, 
just one of the more absurd public controversies I've ever seen, but a tremendous amount of intensity. We've got a wing of sort of MAGA Twitter who is saying that the media hates you and is sowing panic for the purpose of of destroying people's lives and livelihoods to get Trump. You've got so you have this constant fight. And of course, it's taking a come, conducting against a backdrop of, you know, this is president own the libs. You know, this is why do we love him? Because he fights. Well, now, now you have a situation where president own the libs has to become if you're looking at where the outbreaks are and where the intensity of the outbreaks are, uh, are president own the libs has to be president save the libs. And is it any is it any surprise that a lot of the people who are now in these urban areas, after you have a guy who was elected in part to continually fight them every step of the way, is it any surprise that they look at him and say, I'm not sure I trust you to have my best interests at heart? Uh, and I, I think you're exactly right, Sarah. I think it's exact. we are absolutely in a situation where we have a social media culture that is built for combat that but it's not built to combat a biological organism. It's built for <laughs> combat between other human beings. And, uh, you know, I, I have an increasing number of friends who are just telling me I've got to log off. I just I have to yeah. log off. Well, and I'm as guilty as anyone. I'm spending tons of time on Twitter. One one thing I, I just want to push back on a little bit. I, I wrote a column saying that this fight over what they're called the Chinese virus or the, China, or the Wuhan virus or whatever was a huge waste of time, um, even if I think that the right basically has the better part of the argument. I've kind of I'm, – I'm starting to change my mind on this as the Chinese government engages more and more forcefully with uh, serious propaganda campaigns against the United States – saying that it was an army experiment gone awry or that it was, a you know, created by Americans and planted in, in China. And given China's own behavior, um, I mean, I, I, I agree. It is – I hate the argument on Twitter because it is such a own-the-libs kind of argument and a distraction and reminds me a little bit about the rush to talk about free speech in libraries after 9-11 because it was the only place that the left felt like they had something to say. <laughs> but but that said, it, it's, you know, pushing back against what China is doing here, I think, is kind of important. And um, we wouldn't be quite in this position if the World Health Organization hadn't very early on caved to pressure from China in how they were going to name it, how they're going to treat it, their warnings against stigmatizing Asians and all of the rest. I mean, the Chinese seem to be – and I think this is a sign of the weakness of the Chinese government – and Xi's precarious situation is that they're basically following the Putin play of exploiting the, the, the West's sort of political correctness stuff and telling their own populations for domestic consumption that they are at a war with the West in order to prop up the, the fragility of their own regimes. And it's something we got to take seriously because it could get out of hand really, really quickly. So anyway. Steve, I, I mean, you've thought a lot about the Russia-China <laughs> alliance as such in general but this is playing out in a whole different way. Yeah, and I agree with with Jonah. I mean, I think it's at once a, a distraction from the real issue. This fight, and I think a lot of the people who are are waging this fight, you know, who, there are people who are pretending that the very most important thing we ought to settle right now is whether we call this the Wuhan virus or the 
China coronavirus or what have you. I don't think that the naming of this is the most important thing, but I have zero problem with people calling it the China coronavirus. I don't think it's racist. And there have been a, a number of really frightening accounts um, in newspapers in recent days about the behavior of the Chinese government. In the early stages of this, um, decisions that they made to shut down um, doctors who were sounding alarms about this, to cut off research that was taking place that helped identify this, um, the ways in which they were censoring people in their private conversations from talking about this. There is zero doubt that a big part of the blame uh, for this, when we look back on this in 50 years or 100 years, will go to the Chinese uh, government's determination to keep people from talking about it and failure to alert the rest of the world about this. It's also why I think we should be very skeptical of the numbers coming out of China today. You have, yeah. I think, too many people um, looking at the numbers coming out of China and saying, ah, well, basically they've defeated this or, or it's, it's totally on the wane. I'm not sure that we can trust those numbers. We can hope that they're right. And if they're right, that they're, um, that, that they're a harbinger of things that we might see here um, if we take somewhat similar steps in, in sort of the day-to-day -day, uh, handling of this. But I think there's great reason to be very skeptical about this. Well, you know, in you know, defense of my position quickly, who are we wanting to own here? It's the CCP. It's the Chinese propaganda itself. Having this battle with CNN over, they said Wuhan four months ago, and now they say COVID-19, that's very nicely suited for our domestic, our pre-coronavirus domestic political squabble. I think directly confronting the Chinese propaganda, like, for example, which I've seen you do, Jonah, on Twitter, where, where these Chinese tweets are just absurd, like just absurd. It's like what you would imagine um, if, if like Khrushchev's people were on Twitter at the height of the Cold War. Um, I think directly confronting the Chinese propaganda itself is extremely valuable. This long running, how can I how can I search through the Twitter feeds of various CNN reporters and see how they've evolved in describing the virus? Much less interesting to me. I agree with that. So I sure for sure. I also want to highlight that, you know, back to the point of like, not all media is media. We sort of talk about trust in media or the media does this. Um, you know, the Times, the London Times, not the New York Times, on March 1st, I just don't think this got nearly enough attention, but it's incredible reporting with some very brave reporters in China as well, Chinese scientists destroyed proof of virus in December. Lead paragraph. Chinese laboratories identified a mystery virus as a highly infectious new pathogen by late December last year, but they were ordered to stop tests, destroy samples, and suppress the news a Chinese media outlet has revealed. I mean, if you don't think that's bravery in China to publish something like that, um, you know, you're missing the point, and that's the stuff that we should be I mean, debating wildly, talking about highlighting. It was March 1st. And, you know, I get that our country was sort of dealing with how to deal with this domestically right now quickly. But that's a conversation that has yet to be had as a nation here of how you now deal with China moving forward. 
when their regime protection unit basically has caused a worldwide epidemic. Yeah, that that was one of the articles I was referring to. There was another very good one in the Wall Street Journal just over the past couple of days with additional details and a, and a third in the Washington Post. I mean, I do think this is going to be a, a, one of the real long-term um, outcomes of this is dealing with what's, with what's plainly a, a hostile regime in China. I think it's it's been increasingly apparent that that's been the case. We have seen China help the U.S. enemies um, over the years with increasing frequency and with increasing, um, I would say, aggressiveness. Um, and and now this is this is laid bare. And it's not just that they um, censored all of the information, in effect, coming out of China with respect to this disease and shut down. Um, reporters who wanted to report about it, doctors who wanted to, to warn people about it. They have now kicked out uh, reporters, American reporters for the Wall Street Journal, right. the Washington Post, the New York Times, um, which means in, in all certainty that we will have less information about what the Chinese government is up to with respect to this. And if, and if in fact, there is a second wave of this, or if, if in fact, the numbers that, that they're providing to the WHO and others are not accurate numbers, as we know that they weren't at the beginning of this, uh, we'll have much less ability to, to track that and to know that. And I think that brings sort of an, another level of, of danger, uh, again, at the feet of the Chinese. And it'd be nice to see as much outrage over the naming of the virus as them kicking our reporters out. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that would be nice. I mean, but also, you know, the, the one-child policy and the cultural genocide and sometimes actual genocide against Uyghurs, those are bigger issues, too, than whether we call it, you know, the Kung flu or not. But um, uh, the, you know, the, the point I was trying to make, though, is that, you know, and people have heard me say this a million times on, on, on my other podcast and elsewhere, that, you know, the Chinese government is uh, almost as afraid of its own people as its people are afraid of it. And... Um, you can tell that a lot of this has to do with Xi realizing that this was a major blow to his stature and reputation as an infallible leader of China. And um, and if you you know if you if you read up on what the the media climate and the political climate is like in Russia, Russia has basically been telling its citizens that they are in a de facto war with the United States for a very long time, sort of a Cold right. War thing, but that the United States is trying to undermine them, that, that NATO is trying to, like, destroy Russia, It's all, the, all that kind of stuff. And it is, it is a way to justify Putin staying in power indefinitely. And it seems to me that this is a real sign of Xi's weakness and the Communist Party's weakness, that they are going so hard and so fast at following this kind of Putin propaganda approach, which says the West is insulting us, the West is 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 attacking us with bioweapons. Um, this is a way to sort of divert attention the way Putin does, divert attention from the own failures of the government, the really palpable outrage in China about how the Wuhan virus was handled. Uh, I mean, the, I, I listened to the uh, a couple Chinese-based... Um, uh, podcasts and uh, people don't really appreciate just like how how you know there's almost a gr green type revolution brewing 
um, among the Chinese and their outrage about how all of this was handled. And um, and this approach is something – and it's something just to be on the watch for because I don't know that Trump is the best capable person for dealing with nationalistic jingoism from China that is designed to arouse anger from him to justify their propaganda. Uh, this could get kind of ugly pretty quickly and it, it's a real concern of mine. Yeah, I think if you're looking at sort of the difference between B.C. before coronavirus and A.C. after coronavirus foreign policy going in both directions – there's a very real possibility of something that looks a lot more like the Cold War than before the coronavirus, that it's going to be in our interest. And I think a lot of these, a, a lot of folks have been sort of banging the drum about we don't need to be dependent on China for anything that is essential to our public health system, to our national defense infrastructure. All of those things, that's a, those are very legitimate concerns. At the same time, I think that there's going to be it's going to be in the mutual interests of the Chinese regime uh, to it's going to be in the interest of the Chinese regime to take every single thing that we do to declare sort of independence from Chinese supply chains on essential in essential industries as further evidence of the American war against the West. I mean, uh, America's war against China and that will contribute to their own jingoism and their own nationalism. There's not an easy way through that. And we, we have to understand that a Cold War, a renewed sort of Cold War with China has a lot of ramifications, including in the Korean Peninsula, because part of, part of one, one of the positive side effects of our closer relationship with China in, uh, you know, in, a, as the Soviet Union unwound and collapsed, et cetera, one, one of the side benefits is that China was no longer so directly infusing arms and uh, and sustenance into the North Korean regime, you could easily see in a post a, a new Cold War that China doesn't just sort of recoil against the West and the United States. It also extends an extraordinarily dangerous military lifeline and economic lifeline to North Korea, dramatically enhancing its military power, uh, which it could do very quickly and very easily. So this is going to be a fraught and delicate situation going forward, AC, after coronavirus, where we could very well face a situation where we've got sort of the Cold War that's reemerged against Russia with a new Cold War against a far more economically and militarily powerful uh, and potentially military powerful uh, Chinese regime. And that's going to be a different kind of world. So we've definitely looked long-term AC... As uh, David said, looking now incredibly short term, far more domestic, there appears to be a lot more bipartisan support for a, you know, check to every American, the Romney cotton versions of the plan than there is for a payroll tax break, for instance. Uh, Steve, I know you talk to a lot of these folks on the Hill pretty often. Are you hearing anything different? No, not much. I mean, I think the Trump administration early and several people on the Hill were pushing a payroll tax cut um, immediately and, and saw that as a, a remedy, if not quite a panacea. The, I, I think the um, preferences have shifted among many Republicans to this plan. Mitt, Mitt Romney has one version of it, which is $1,000 per uh, every adult. Uh, Tom Cotton has sort of another version of it, I think, that includes 
kids. And I think that's becoming sort of the, the de facto Republican position. Democrats um, like it. I think generally think it doesn't go far enough. Um, but what's interesting to me is you have the president, um, who's not, of course, been afraid to, to spend uh, over his first three years in office, hearing um, that the total bill was going to be in the neighborhood of 800 $850 billion and saying, we've got to really go big, let's make it a trillion. And it's a similar <laughs> kind of argument you heard um, emerge out of the, the president's top advisors when there was a discussion over infrastructure and the numbers came in below a trillion and the president kept bumping it up to a trillion to this big round number. Look, I mean, I think this is a really, this is a challenging place for for small government conservatives who have been um, very concerned with debt and deficits over the years. Uh, you know, we in our, our short um, life here at the Dispatch ha have published a number of articles. It's been one of the things that we've really tried to to highlight um, $23.4 trillion in debt. And, you know, one of the things that we had argued was that it was irresponsible to spend the way that we were spending and to have neither political party take a serious look at entitlement reform, which is the path to lowering the debt if there is one to be had, and not doing that in, in peacetime with a strong economy or relative peacetime with a strong economy. The spending kept growing and growing and growing. There was no determination by virtually anybody, uh, at least among elected officials, to do anything about it when there was an opportunity to do something about it. Now, of course, is the time when you arguably need the government to, to take these kinds of drastic measures to uh, infuse additional cash into the, into the system and, uh, and look at the ways that we can save sort of structural or, or help save structural uh, parts of the economy. Uh, but the the sad outcome is that we're going to be adding considerably to that twenty three point four trillion dollars in debt, and I just don't think there's there's a way around it. Jonah, I'm going to see if I can pick a fight with you. I don't think that if we send, he's putting his dukes up, guys. I don't think <laughs> if we send, let's let's take the Romney plan because it's just easier. A thousand dollars to every adult. I don't think it should be means tested. Go. Um, I think it should be means tested, but, um, I, I, I think it was Josh Barrow had a good suggestion. If it's easier to get it out quickly to everybody, send it to everybody, but then create a sort of a viral cultural campaign for the people who don't need it, they should give it to people, you know, just give it away in tips, you know, yeah. buy gift certificates at stores. I'm going to, there are a couple places I'm going to be doing that this week. Um, but you know. Two points on this. One is, I mean, I don't know if this is picking a fight with you or not, but I, I am deeply skeptical any of this is going to work. I mean, like any of it. I'm deeply skeptical that the quarantining is going to work. The idea that you're going to keep people from making a money for, for six weeks, two months, um, I, I'm not sure I buy it. Um, I'm not sure the economy can take it. I'm not sure people want the trade-off that's involved in that. Um, I'm not sure it's going to work as a public health matter because the odds are is that most people are going to get the virus anyway. Um, I'm also not sure. I mean, people call this a stimulus. I don't know how stimulative giving people a thousand dollars is when they're losing two or three thousand dollars a month by not working. Um, and this is not a criticism. I don't know what to do. And this may be the smartest, best thing to do. You know, it's like if your house is burning, um, 
and you grab a pot full of water and someone says, well, that's not the best pot for carrying water. It's like, yeah, but that's the one I got right now, right? You know, you, it, there's a time value here about doing something fast, both on a psychological level and an economic level. So maybe this is the best thing to do with the tools that are at hand in this moment. But um, it is not obvious to me that the path that we're taking is going to work out, that it is necessarily the path that you would have prescribed if you gave us these kinds of facts six months ago, gave the experts you know, this fact pattern six months ago and said, how would you respond to this? I'm not sure this is how, what they would come up with. And I am not sure that in two years from now, when we look back on this, we're going to say, wow, we handled that just right. That said, and this is something I've been planning on writing about, can we, you know, one of the great rules of, it turns out, of global pandemics is other than the fact that they cause old people to die and people to freak out, they also end up confirming all of the priors of ideologues. And so all the socialists think that this proves that socialism is worthwhile. All the capitalists, you know, like me, think it proves all sorts of things about capitalists and all the rest. Um, and I'm going to write about a bit about that for the dispatch um, today and tomorrow. But, um, you know, for the people who denounce the United States or even the Trump administration as just caring about money and just caring about the stock market, this country is incurring trillions of dollars of losses, losses in economic activity and lost value in the stock market to protect literally the least productive members of society. And I don't mean that as a criticism. That is a good and noble thing. And the people who want to say that America is this heartless place where we just sort of write off, um, you know, the, un, the, the people who aren't, you know, members of the, the working class or the proletariat, the means of production, is garbage. What right. America is doing is unbelievably self-sacrificing and heroic. And, um, and, you know, one of the points that I think is sort of hilarious is that all of the nationalists and all of the socialists who say we desperately need to get out of capitalism to, you know, to unite this country – can't you know are, are you know the people that they think are on their side are young people and they're the least likely to actually want to participate in this solidarity stuff <laughs> um but uh you know let's take a just step back and and recognize what this society is doing in terms of just the hit it is taking to protect the most vulnerable and least economically productive people in our society and that is something that should if it doesn't contradict some of the, your anti-capitalist rhetoric and assumptions, then you ha you're not really paying attention. David? Well, let me, let me give my three cheers for Romney Bucks uh, for a minute. Um, first, I really want Romney Bucks to be a thing, but I think it's only a thing in our dispatch comment boards. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so here's what I would say for non-mean-tested non uh, cash infusion. One is I think it's just wrong to say that above a certain level of income, people are not strapped for cash. Um, that's I just think that's wrong. I think above certain levels of income, people are less likely to be strapped for cash. But it's just wrong to say here at a, a certain level, it's easy street. Um, paycheck to paycheck is a phenomenon that runs up and down the uh, runs up and down American social classes always has certainly with the super rich it's not true but as a general matter everyone from working class middle class upper middle class there's a large number of people in all of these social strata who are paycheck to paycheck number two even though 
it's absolutely true that a thousand for each adult or whatever it turns out to be is going to be less than what people are losing. What it does allow you to do is at least take care for an awful lot of people of the the most essential expense. So for example, um, if you're looking at an array of expenses, just to sort of like take my household, for example, you have a mortgage and you also have tuition. So the mortgage is where you live and then you're paying tuition, say, for college that has been canceled. <laughs> and so I'm lower, putting lower on the priority scale. Sorry, University of Tennessee, you'll, you'll get your money, don't worry. But if I had to make those choices, if, if I was in a situation where I had to make those choices, I'm keeping the roof over our family's head. And I think that at least what that does is it allows you, it gives people that ability to make that really fundamental key choice. The second, the second thing about it is, unlike a payroll tax cut, it could very well end up being much less expensive than a payroll tax cut to the fiscal responsibility point. I've seen numbers ranging upwards to almost a trillion dollars in costs for a payroll tax cut alone, uh, whereas a, the one-time Romney bucks might be between $250 billion and $300 billion, depending on how it's put together. That's a lot less money. It's a lot faster. It's a lot more direct. Uh, and it and goes it to gives, more people. It goes to right? more Not people. Not everybody has a W-2 that, you know, or whatever you call it that has withholding from it, right? I mean, there are exactly. a lot of people in the gig economy who would not be benefiting well, from a... Exactly. And this is and last, my beef, by the way. Oh, go ahead, David. Last point. Well, just the very last thing, just from a principled fairness justice standpoint, the thing I like about it is that... So the government is intervening dramatically in certain st cities and states in the U.S. to force people to end their productive... Live, to, to, to end their livelihood, at least for the time being, their means of earning a livelihood for the time being. The government is forcing that. People who'd be willing to work wanting to accept the risks to work, it's forcing a stop to that. To then come in on top of that and say, okay, we're going to force the stop, but there's going to be a degree of compensation, seems to me to be, from a fairness and justice standpoint, uh, not just dispensable, uh, I mean, defensible, but maybe indispensable in that, in that context. So I think, Jonah, perhaps most to your point that the... <laughs> I'm going to take issue with the conservative talking points here. Um, those who are falling back on these sort of normal conservative talking points, frankly, even about debt and deficit, but I'm not going to really do too much on that. Um, they ring so hollow to me, so out of touch with what's going on. For instance, I saw, uh, what was it? Laffer, Moore, a group of them talking about why it would be better to do the payroll tax cut over the Romney bucks, we'll now call them, uh, you know, because it, quote, incentivizes work. I found that to be an offensive argument as we are telling people that they cannot work in certain industries, particularly like the very people who are least likely to get a payroll tax cut <laughs> are the ones who were working and are being told they can't work. And you're saying that it's because they're lazy. I mean, shove it up places. <laughs> uh, and the on the means testing, I agree with what you're saying, David. I think all that is accurate as far as it goes. But I also think that part of a national emergency and part of this pandemic is for as long as you can, you want everyone to feel like they're in this together. And I think our entire yeah, great tax point. code uh, 
is builds resentment against other people. Um, and it puts you in one category and someone else in another category and you're subsidizing their lifestyle. And that's what, you know, at least to some extent, I think has contributed to polarization. And by saying, nope, everyone gets $1,000. And to Josh Barrow's point, yes, we're going to try to build a shame culture around whether you should keep that $1,000 is great. We need more civil society weighing in on this and less government saying, uh, David, I'm taking your tax dollars and giving them to Jonah. Well, how do you think you're going to feel about Jonah then? In the middle of a national crisis. Well, I'll, <clears throat> was that question named to I'll, me? I'll jump in. I mean, <laughs> I, I, for, first, I mean, I agree with the I agree with the general thrust of the the conversation here. Um, I, I think we have to be mindful that this will be re- redistributive. I mean, it's it's inescapably redistributive. This money, the government doesn't have money, so ultimately, this is money that's coming from taxpayers one way or another at some point, sooner or in all likelihood later. Um, when we have a, a real debt crisis. Um, on the broader point, I, I think it is important to be, um, as, as we see uh, elected officials make these policies, to really scrutinize how they're doing it. I mean, I was talking to um, members of the House last Friday as they were closing in on finalizing the terms of their package. This was, as we've seen repeatedly over the past couple, uh, couple of decades, Another of those uh, examples of a bill where nobody knew what was in it minutes before they were required to vote on it, less than an hour before they were required to vote on it, it was still the case that people didn't know what was in it. It was more than 100 pages. People weren't given the opportunity to read it. It was anything but targeted. I mean, this was a sort of free-for-all, as we've seen again and again and again with these emergency spending packages. And the other concern about them is emergency spending packages are rarely emergencies only. These things live uh, well beyond their emergencies. They survive well beyond their emergencies. So I think it's, I do think it's important to, to be mindful of that and to, to ask people in some cases to slow down a little bit. Now, obviously this is, this is urgent. It's, it's, uh, necessary to, to send some of this cash back into the economy. But uh, I don't think it needs to be, uh, we don't need to be irresponsible about the way we do it. And final point on, on the, the broader question, I do think it'll be very important <clears throat> as we contemplate how to, to build these packages to, to keep in mind what we've seen over the past decade. I think there, one of the reasons that we had uh, you know, the Tea Party and, and I would say later Donald Trump was the sense that in the bailouts that followed the 2008 fiscal crisis, money went to save big banks and it went to save uh, big industry. And it didn't go as much to the average working man or woman who, you know, had, had worked hard, had saved money, had invested in 401ks, had done the things that everybody had said responsible people do. And then got punished for it. And I think one of the reasons that we're here is the aftermath of that. You think, and this is a a pessimistic note, you think about the kinds of divisions we've seen in our society over the past five years um, and, and the rise of populism on both the left and the right in what was a very strong economy. 
Um, probably not the, the booming economy that the president pretended, but not the, the hollowed out economy that some of his critics suggested either. If, if we had those kinds of tensions, um, people at each other's throats um, to a certain extent, or at least the political class, I think it's very likely that, that those will be exacerbated as we start looking at real economic hardship uh, potentially in the years to come. Although sometimes common enemies are helpful. When all is well, you end up fighting amongst yourselves in the foxhole. True. That could, I mean, that could be, that, that would be, uh, I'd be thrilled with that outcome. I, I'd bet you on it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's take this because I think that what you just said, Steve, about sort of the resentment towards the bailout on banks and that not going to working people is a, an articulate way of summarizing what happened at the debate on Sunday and Bernie Sanders message that there, you know, we've done bailouts for banks and it didn't go to anyone else. And that's the economy that's not working for people. Uh, last night, Sanders lost all three states that were up. Uh, it was supposed to be four and Ohio at the very last minute canceled or postponed rather their primary. Um, you know, to some extent, I think that was vindicated given the turnout in Illinois was about 40% down from previous, from 2016, close to that for 2008. Uh, let, let's start at the very beginning. David, did DeWine make the right call in Ohio postponing the primary? I, I tend to think that he did, uh, but I'm not, it's a hard, hard call, um, I mean, there are there are races that exist, and, and before we were talking about the we were before we started recording the the podcast, um, Sarah, you were talking about how many of these primaries. You're not just talking about races. The race for the president, the Democratic nomination for the presidency, being relevant. There are down ballot races. There are other races that are important uh, for the normal administration of government in these states. And so, I think it's a a very hard hard call. But I do think. If you're going to tell people, you got to be very careful about interacting with your with other human beings. You got to maintain social distancing. We're going to be closing bars. We're going to be closing restaurants. Your daily life is going to be disrupted, except for politics. And then we're going to all gather together at these really big polling stations uh, where social distancing is a near impossibility. Where disproportionately senior uh, senior citizen volunteers will be receiving your you know your voter registration information. There's an inconsistency there combined with a lack of necessity for the uh, the election taking place right now. And and, you know, one of the things I, I saw some people saying, well, this is democracy in danger. This is democracy in danger. We got to draw a really bright line distinction between a presidential primary and a general election because a presidential primary is undertaken for the benefit of a private party. It is an election for the benefit. It is the allocation of state resources for the benefit of a private party, and that is the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, which is a private entity. You're, the state is facilitating a private entity's private decision-making process for the selection of a nominee for president. There's not even a requirement constitutionally in any way, shape, or form that these parties have to have primaries. As Jonah is uh, fond of saying, we could go back to the smoke-filled room. You don't even have to have this. So this is a non-essential 
function of government that is undertaken for the benefit of a private party. And under those circumstances, it feels to me like as an act of consistency and safety, I would support his decision to delay. And in an interesting way, the huge Florida turnout number to me sort of vindicates the Ohio decision uh, that there was uh, there were still an awful lot of people, even in the even in the uh, backdrop of a coronavirus threat, who are willing to just go ahead and gather. Um, and and I love the participation in democracy, but I th- feel like this was a moment in time where I think DeWine had the right call. Anyone disagree? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, I'm on DeWine's side, and I agree with all David's points about you know, you know, canceling a party primary is legally no different than canceling a party convention or conference or caucus or, for that matter, ultimate frisbee match. It's not a government <laughs> function. Uh, the 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 point I just would want to add is, is like. Enough with the goddamn primary already. The Democratic Party, you just should call it. Um, I'm sorry for taking the Lord's name in vain, David. I know Sarah doesn't care. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the Democratic Party, Biden has this running away. And um, even if something happens to Biden, it doesn't by default go to Bernie. The other candidates would get back in. Something else would happen. Um, Bernie should get out for all the obvious reasons, but the Democratic Party should, you know, uh, you know, man up. Sorry to be so toxically masculine here, um, and just say this is we're done with this now. And he's going to be he's the presumptive nominee. Who cares? I mean, with proportional, you know, uh, the way the primary works on the Democratic side, where everyone gets some delegates once they pass fifteen percent, it makes it like almost literally mathematically impossible at this point for Bernie to win. So just be done with it and stop, you know, making this a huge issue when it doesn't need to be. But that's not why he's staying in. And it would uh, make it a, it would know. make it a bigger issue. I mean, I agree with David yeah, and Jonah on, on, on Mike DeWine's decision. I think it was a smart decision. Look, either we're, either this is a national health emergency or it's not. And if it is, we should act like it is. And if it's not, then more people are going to get sick. Uh, I disagree strongly with with Jonah on what the Democratic Party should do. The the biggest challenge for the Democrats between now and November is to unite those two different camps. I think there are probably 50 different camps, but to oversimplify, the Bernie camps with the non-Bernie camp and to try to bring in um, the, the Bernie bros and sisters and others into the Biden camp to, to build the Democratic coalition. I think if if the Democratic Party were to step in now, it would confirm every theory, conspiracy, crazy or real that Bernie Sanders supporters have about the Democratic Party. I think give him time. His, I don't his, think Biden is going to get those dead enders anyway. I think most of the people who like Bi- who like Bernie, there are fewer of them than people thought. And um, and I'm not saying that Biden has to like you know just pee from a great height on the whole Sanders movement. But uh, <laughs> but that's what know, he'd be he doing. He has such a great opportunity to just sort of – the party has such a great opportunity to just sort of say, look, enough with this stuff and put some pressure on Bernie. I mean, look, I, I personally think that Tom Perez should put Bernie on – on an ice floe and send them out into the Arctic. I mean, just be done with them. But that's Ignore the big him. argument that Bernie people have made up against the Democratic Party 
for literally for years, and you'll just be confirming every part of this. Look, I think he's likely to get out. Also, you had a statement from his campaign chairman this yeah. morning that he's assessing uh, his options going forward. I think there will be tremendous pressure. Better to have it come sort of from rank and file Democrats and from Democratic governors I'm, I'm who are taking about, this seriously than here, to have right? it come top down from the leaders of the Democratic Party saying to him, hey, you got to get out. I mean, if he if he steps out, I think their goal for the, for the better case, you know, if, if he steps out and he says, look, I need to I really would like to be president of the United States. I'd like to have the Democratic nomination. The responsible thing for me to do now is to step, step aside so that we don't put people in jeopardy by asking them to go to the polls, to, to cast their ballots in these things, um, I'm going to step aside. I think that has the potential for Democrats to be a healing moment that would have seemed elusive had we talked about it six weeks ago. I think all that's true, but I think it's relevant to look at their strategic interest. And by there, I mean the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. In 2016, when Bernie stayed in until June, he didn't endorse Hillary until July, at the convention, they were able to get a number of concessions uh, on the policy committee and on the platform committee uh, and on how various caucuses and primaries would be run from that point forward, as we saw with Iowa. The fact that the DNC gave into it or allowed it, whatever you want to call it, set up the incentives for this time. The more delegates they get, the more members they get on the platform committee, which they care deeply about. This has always been a policy movement for them, uh, according to their own standards. So why not then collect these delegates if the DNC says that's how they're going to determine how big a voice you have? You know, I don't think that game will work this time. Uh, If you go back to late to 2016, they were in a position of real strength. I mean, they had almost beaten Hillary. There was a sense, and I can't remember exactly when the vindication began to emerge through the various hacks, but a sense that we perhaps could have won this, except for the thumb, the DNC's thumb on the scales, regardless of whether, you know, on the merits that's true. It was so close that it was at least a plausible argument here. You know, I never thought I would say these words, but the Joe Biden campaign has nuked them from orbit. Uh, (laughs) This has been a a absolute, utter catastrophic route. And and it's even worse than it looks because some of the closeness that you see on Super Tuesday, some of the closeness immediately after Super Tuesday was the result of early artificial result of early voting. So they have just been nuked. Their guy has absolutely no path forward. Their entire function right now is to be sort of the fly in the ointment, the irritation to Biden, the obstacle to unity with no strength at all. And I think if they try to double down on that weak hand, they're going to find out that Red Rose Twitter is basically the extent of the movement. And uh, of the of the of the core of the movement and Red Rose, Rose Twitter ain't that big. Yeah, I just think that the, the people that Biden needs um, and if you look at the poll, if you look at the exit polls in places like Michigan, they're not the Bernie bros. I mean, they'll get some Biden will get s- some segment of Bernie's coalition no matter what, because they hate Trump, too. What Biden really needs is the suburban former Republicans, former independents, who turns out turned out in droves, and it turns out that the, the Biden that that Bernie's message is much less popular 
with the base of the Democratic Party than we thought. It was artificially boosted because people were voting against Hillary. That seems obvious now. And, you know, so Biden shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be disrespectful to Bernie. But and when I say the Democrat, I mean, my druthers would be for the Democratic Party to just sort of say that's it, because I, I want the parties to get stronger and be more assertive. I think strong parties reduce, um, you know, political polarization and partisanship. Um, but, you know, they can go to Bernie and say, hey, look, what do you want? You know, you can have one plank in the platform. Is it to collectivize agriculture? Is it to, you know, uh, invade Poland, um, annex Crimea? Whatever it is that you want from your platform to embrace the Hegelian dialectic as the true arbiter of history, whatever it is, you get one thing and buy them off. Because that's that's what Biden – I mean, that's what Bernie Sanders has been for 30 years is a single-issue candidate who just basically is a gadfly. And so reward his gadflyness and get him off the stage. <laughs> so they did have uh, one big win last night. Uh, Dan Lipinski was the last pro-life Democrat, I think, in the House of Representatives. Uh, and the Sanders and AOC-backed candidate won. They've actually had quite a few losses in some of these primary challenges. So that was, I think, their their silver lining of why to keep Bernie on the ballot through the rest of these if they have more of these style down-ballot challenges. Uh, okay, I want to wrap on something that I've been curious about for you guys. All three of you have children who are now at home with you. Steve, you talked about this a little off pod, if you will. Uh, You're talking to your kids about this. How are you approaching that? How are they taking it? Because to me, I was in college for September 11th. I think it, um, it definitely changed my worldview, but I think it changed my generation's worldview about how we approached politics, America, our culture, etc. I think it will for this generation. I'm curious how you talk to them, what you think they're thinking. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, let me start by saying I'm not sure I, I did it the right way, but I, but I did it kind of the only way I, I knew how. We have, as I mentioned earlier, we have um, another family staying with us and their kids are roughly the same age as 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 our kids um so we've got 15 13 10 and 3 and um we didn't include the the younger kids obviously but we included the older kids and basically i just sat them down with my computer at the kitchen table and did a 30 minute class on what this was and why we're doing this crazy stuff and how if they think it feels weird, they're right. It is weird. It's weird for adults too. Um, you know, I tried to find the balance between making them take it seriously and um, understand that no, we're not going to allow people into our little bubble and we're not going to go out of our little bubble. Um, we're going to all stay here and we're going to, you know, self quarantine and nobody's going to be getting in or out. And then explain the reasons why that was, because, you know, they, they're following this a little bit on their own and they see that this doesn't tend to have direct negative effects on young people. Um, the thing that I found very useful was the, the Washington Post simulation about um, the various ways of containing or mitigating the spread. Uh, the Post had this wonderful simulation for people who haven't seen it. Uh, I highly recommend going there. I read yesterday that it was the, the single biggest online piece read at the Washington Post in the Post's digital history, and there's a reason for it. 
it walks you through sort of step by step what it what is accomplished by uh, social distancing and and real social distancing, partial social distancing, and what have you. And it did it in a way that I think was really easy for um, kids and people like me who have sort of kid level capabilities to understand. And walking them through that and showing how the spread of the disease uh, is decreased dramatically if you uh, stay in your own little little bubbles was very helpful. And then I just took questions from them. They had, they had a lot of sort of pretty smart and sophisticated questions. And I think they left by, um, you know, sort of with an understanding that this is serious and that we have to treat it seriously, but not too terribly freaked out. I will say the one mistake we made was then having a showing of the movie Contagion right after that, <laughs> which <laughs> maybe undid all of the careful things that I had tried to do in the in the actual uh, mini tutorial. That movie messes you up. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's a good... Look, I think the movie itself is very, very well done. It, it you know, the way that we... They had lots of additional questions after they watched the movie. Um you know, and, and I said this would be the absolute worst case scenario, the kinds of things that, that are depicted in the movie. But the first half of the movie walks you through something that looks and feels a little bit like what we're going through right now. And in that sense, I think, you know, ha- having that worst case scenario play out in front of them, maybe a little extreme, but not probably terrible for them to see, particularly because it came in the context of a, of a discussion about, about what this all is. David, your youngest is 12, right? Yes. Yes. So I, I'm in a unique situation. So I have a 21-year-old daughter and her 22-year-old husband who are with us now, a 19-year-old son uh, and 12-year-old daughter. And so the older kids are – we're all kind of if, – if you could read, read like our family group text, they're all uh, – just imagine like a version of our dispatch Slack channel um, flinging back and forth tweets about what's going on. It's just they're, the older kids are fully engaged in following politics, following the news. And so they've been kind, we've been kind of all learning and going through this together. The big challenge is, you know, when you have a 12-year-old, you, don't, you can't pull her into this in the same way. You want to protect her from some of the extremes of anxiety um, and, and really make sure that you're – that you're not assuming that she's keeping up with everything in the way that everybody else is. And so uh, one of the things that that we haven't really had sort of sat down and had like a big talk about it because we've been having small talks about it from day one. Um, So what we have used this time for is this incredibly productive exercise of debating and talking about the merits of various YouTube conspiracy theories that my son brings up (laughs) at dinner we believe ironically, uh, but it's, he, he expresses them with just enough credulity that it creates an animated discussion. And it's, it actually gets to be hilarious at times. But I've had more discussions about the, what is it, the 400-foot wall around the earth that proves that we're flat, that the earth is flat, than I'd ever thought I've had. And they're pretty funny. So we're trying to make the best of it all. Um, and then with the 12 year old, we're just, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're using this as an opportunity. It's have the appropriate conversations as much as we can, but also trying to make it fun because she's getting to spend a heck of a lot more time with her older siblings who she misses very much because they've been off at college. And that includes bringing in, uh, and uh, there go the dogs. 
uh, and that includes bringing in, um, uh, bringing her into things like Lord of the Rings, which she hasn't seen before, and you know, just staying up late, which she doesn't normally get to do, and trying to make the best of it. So, Jonah, how have you explained this to to Zoe and Pippa? Um, they're, they <laughs> love home quarantine. The dogs think it's fantastic how yeah. all the, hum- the entire pack is home. Um, my daughter is a little more complicated. First of all, when Steve was talking about how they invited another family into their house and then they had to explain things to the kids, I was really hoping he was going to get really, really dark and talk about how <laughs> we don't think it's going to go this way. But in worst case scenario, because we have these people here, we do have our own alternative food supply. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> that we love them and we want to protect them until they become livestock, um, which is a very uh, Walking Dead thing. Um, but uh, Steve, uh, David will remember the terminal stuff um, from like season four, Walking Dead. Um, remember it well. And no, so for my daughter, I mean, as I think a lot of listeners probably know, uh, she has been in Spain for her junior year of high school until last Friday. And. Uh, she went to bed Thursday night thinking she was going to have a normal day of school and woke up to her phone blowing up with people saying, we have 24 hours to get out of the country. And so there's there's a lot of disappointment in that because she was finally like getting into a groove of being there. She was about to go on a fun spring break thing in, you know, in Europe. That got blown up. And then she comes back and encounters all of this crazy emotional culture shock and she doesn't know how she's going to do school and it's going to have to be online for the rest of the year. She can't matriculate back into her her actual school in D.C. because we don't even know if they're going to have classes. Um, and it's, you know, part, I don't talk about my daughter in these terms very much, but, you know, one of the things that's sort of a challenge for her is she has a very, very powerful sense of nostalgia and a very small C conservative streak in her. And so just to give you one example, um, she really didn't want to turn 10 because her basic <laughs> position was single digits were awesome and it's all downhill after you hit double digits. <laughs> Not and wrong. she's kind of got a point, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I asked her, you know, how she was feeling about it. One of the things she said to me is she finds it all a little bit depressing. Again, she's still not really grasping that this thing isn't really about her because – she just had the most crazy last 72 hours, and she's, you know, a teenage girl. Um, but she was like, uh, one of the things I find depressing about it is that this is going to be one of those things that you were either alive and aware for or you weren't. And it's going to make me feel older than people who are younger than me for the rest of my life. <laughs> and it's kind of a good point, you know. I mean, it's like – you know, we talk about people who were around for 9-11 and who weren't, and, you know, this is going to be – this is like her 9-11 now, you know. And um, and so the last thing I was going to say, because I meant to bring it up earlier, people should be on the watch now. Maybe this should be a recurring topic on this podcast of stuff that is going to have legs long after this is over. Uh, for example – People of a certain age just do not know that the cable news networks did not have the crawl of breaking news constantly streaming along the bottom of the screen. Uh, that was basically imposed during the aftermath of 9-11 where you had these you know, breaking news stories that just sort of slide along the bottom of the screen. That, they, didn't, they didn't do that until then. And that's, now it's a permanent part of like sort of how we perceive what news does. 
it'd be interesting, and I think there are a lot of other things like that. It'd be interesting to see what sticks around for a long time. Do we lose handshakes? Um, I hope you know, so. I know you were. <laughs> I, I'm kind of. I'm kind of with you on that. Um, I certainly I can go love. On a, you know, I have a feminist the cheek kissing thing. I think too. I'm truly done with, but you know. Anyway. So here's here's my list of uh, things I'll be looking for in the now to months to come. Uh, a baby boom in nine to ten months. A divorce boom in three months. <laughs> sort of the opposite of the baby boom, if you will, but for the same reasons, frankly. Uh, and then I'm very curious whether we will see an increase or decrease in food poisoning as people go out to eat less. On the one hand, a lot of food poisoning does come from restaurants. On the other hand, we have a lot of people trying to cook with raw meat and vegetables that they don't really quite know what to do with. And last, but related, uh, fires. Will we see more kitchen fires as people also try to use their kitchens for the first time? (laughs) Yes to all of those. (laughs) (laughs) well on that note uh let's do this again soon guys and uh we'll (laughs) we'll continue to invite our animals in to join the podcast now and a lot of hoodie wearing is getting done i see um from looking around uh and who knows i mean things have changed a lot since our podcast a week ago when we were all together so let's see what a week brings Someone pointed out on Twitter that we're about six weeks away from finding out what a lot of people's real hair color is. Yes. (laughs) Um, That's another one to keep an eye on. Jonah's is red. Well, you know, in six weeks, you'll see me in dreadlocks, guys, at at this growth rate. I knew you shaved your head. (laughs) Talk soon.